It's been a good day, hasn't it? I don't know why my mind went to a cartoon about thinking about today. Any Farside fans here? Don't don't you miss Farside? <laughs> there there was this one Farside cartoon of the student sitting in a classroom, and he had a fairly good-sized body, but a very tiny head. And he raises his hand and says, Teacher, can I go home? My head is full. <laughs> I don't know why that came to my mind today. <laughs> Just, I thought of that far side card. Oh, hmm. Well, we need God's help. I appreciate so much uh, Brother Don's prayer a while ago and uh, just thanking the Lord, but also asking the Lord's help. We, we do need help. And tonight we're going to be talking about marriage. And I've given this sermon um, two titles. I can't decide which one. Uh, maybe the longer one, God's Gospel-Fueled Solution to Our Marriage Problems. And, and I told you last night, those of you that are here, that I would share our story tonight. Um, I can distinctly remember sitting on our living room floor, looking up at my wife, Gladine, who's here in the room. She was sitting on a rocker. And I remember sitting there on the carpet with pain in my heart, and I know pain in her heart. And the question going through my mind is, how did we get here? How did we get here? We had just had another episode of what we politely call intense fellowship. Um, I think usually you call them arguments. I just couldn't get her to see how wrong she was. And she wasn't convincing me that I was wrong. We were about 20 years into our marriage. There had been no adultery, no cataclysmic event, no calls to a divorce attorney. But if I could use the analogy of a hot air balloon, this is the way I would describe our marriage at that point. The hot air balloon of our marriage had just kind of gradually lost heat. And you know what happens to a hot air balloon that loses heat. It just kind of slowly descends. And at that point in our marriage, the gondola of our marriage was bumping along the ground, being carried along by the daily challenges of life. And it just wasn't fun anymore. Our marriage just, it wasn't fun anymore. How did we get here? As I sat there asking that question, looking up at my wife, who quite frankly had a look of depression on her face. It was as if the Holy Spirit took a two-by-four to my heart. I knew I was argumentative. I knew I was angry. But I felt very self-justified. I felt very self-justified in my arrogant argumentation feeling that I was justified to have the attitude I did. After all, look at the way she's talking to me. Look at the way she's treating me. I knew I was supposed to be loving her the way Christ loves the church. And I taught that. I taught that to the men in our church. But how was I supposed to be loving her with the way I felt she was treating me? I didn't feel like she was doing a very good job of respecting me and loving me. And how would you expect me to love her when she was treating me like that? I had neither the humility nor the guts 
to search her heart. But if I had humble courage enough to tenderly probe her heart, I'm confident she would have said something very similar from a feminine perspective. I'm confident that Gladine could have said, how do you expect me to follow you? How do you expect me to support you? How do you expect me to respect you? When you talk to me that way, when you treat me with that kind of anger, argumentation, our society, our communities, our church, your church has hurting marriages. I would be naive to assume that there's no hurting marriages in this room. Why is that? Why are so many marriages running low on love? Why are so many running on fumes? And what's the solution? I get asked to speak at men's conferences, and uh, I tend to say yes. I mean, even conferences that are not from our theological spectrum of evangelicalism, sometimes people wonder why I say yes to those invitations. <laughs> because I want to give some gospel influence. I want to point them to Christ. I've been to too many men's seminars where the solutions given to marriage problems are three keys of communication. Five tips on how to date your wife. Do we need three tips of communication? Yeah, maybe. I probably need more than three. <laughs> Do we need five keys of dating your wife? Probably. I probably need more than five. But I've been to way too many marriage seminars, way too many men's retreats that are nearly Christless. Last fall, I was a breakout session speaker at a large men's conference in the Midwest. And uh, wasn't plenary speaker. I was one of the breakout session speakers. And so I sat in the plenary sessions. And there were about 900 men in this particular men's conference. And um, guys had come from a number of states. And the plenary speaker stood up there and gave what I call a Christian coach's speech. You know what I'm talking about? Christian coach's speech. It's like, come on, men. You can do it. Be a man. Come on, rise up. Be a man. You can do it. And I'm sitting at the back of the auditorium, aching in my heart. Because when we were going through our hard times, those kind of Christian coaches' speeches didn't last more than from the auditorium to the car. And I wanted to shout. The Holy Spirit restrained me, I'm sure, because I would have made a fool of myself and disturbed that meeting. But I felt like standing up in the back of that large auditorium and yell, Give us Christ! Give us Christ! But it was Christless. What's our problem? What, when we, and we all do. We've, we all do go through marriage problems. When we go through marriage problems, why is that? What's going on in our hearts? What's at the root of it? And then what's the solution? This evening, I want to talk about our root problem. I, I want to get radical. I want to get down to the root. What's going on? And then what's the solution that God gives us in the gospel? 
almost, I'll be bold enough to say almost all marriages get off on the wrong foot. If you were here last night, I mentioned the fact that our church is located in the same town as a Christian college and a theological seminary. So we typically have anywhere from 75 to 100 students in our church, college and seminary students. And uh, you get that many young adults in the same place, I guarantee you're going to have a lot of weddings. <laughs> and we do. So I do a lot of marriage counseling, premarital counseling. And um, a lot of times I'll do premarital counseling for a couple that I know pretty well. Uh, right now I'm doing premarital counseling with a couple. I've known the gal literally her whole life. Um, you know, I don't feel like I need to ask a whole lot of getting to know you questions in those situations. But sometimes I end up doing premarital counseling with a couple I hardly know. They're college students from somewhere else, just happen to be in our community for three or four years while they're in school, and I've never gotten to know them that well. So first session, first session, I, I need to get to know this couple. So a typical question I'll ask a couple in the first, the first session when they come is often I'll start with a guy. I'll turn to the guy and I'll say, hey, why, why do you want to marry this gal? Now, now understand, I'm going to give you my summary of multiple sessions with multiple couples. No one's actually used these words. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit to make a point. So I'll ask the guy, now, why do you want to marry this girl? And he says, he looks at her and he's get that, he gets that grin on his face and he says, just love her. And I, I say, well, that, that's great. You know, that, that's great. I say, Tell me more about that. What's that mean? What, what, what do you mean you love her? Well, when I'm around her, she just makes me feel so happy. She just, she laughs at my jokes. She thinks I'm great. She comes to all my games, you know, and, and she, she just thinks I'm great. She makes me so happy. I just want to marry her to give her the opportunity to make me happy for the rest of her life. <laughs> now, no one's actually said that, but close. So you know what I do next, right? I turn to the gal. And I say, hey, tell me, why do you want to marry this guy? He reaches over and she touches his hand, you know, and she says, I, I just love him. Well, that's great. Tell me more. You know, what's that mean? Well, I don't know. I just love him. You know, I, when I'm around him, I just feel so warm. I, I'm just so happy. He just makes me feel so accepted and I'm just so happy when I'm around him and I just want to marry him and give him the opportunity to make me happy for the rest of his life. And, and so they get married. No, actually, I don't let them stay there. But, you know, there have been plenty of couples that have gotten married for that reason, right? I want to marry this guy. I want to marry this girl because he, she just makes me so happy. And so they get married. And a number of weeks later, he cracks some joke, and she doesn't laugh. And he suddenly realizes that she doesn't seem to be admiring as much as me as much as she used to. And why did she talk to me that way? Why is she so snippy with me today? What time of the month is it? You know, and, and he starts thinking, well, she's not the best thing on two feet anyway. And she looks at him and and she's frustrated. Why is he watching that game? We just got this new book on marriage. Why isn't he reading that book with me? Why does he want to watch the game? What's so important about that game? She thinks maybe he's not the best thing that's happened in maleness. In fact, he's kind of a jerk right now. And we say the what is over. The 
the honeymoon is over. And for some couples, it happens on their honeymoon. <laughs> and, and so what typically happens in a marriage? What, what typically happens? I'll tell you what I've seen. With couples in our church and sometimes with that guy in the mirror. Usually when people realize, you're not making me happy anymore. You know, I married you to make me happy, and you're not doing a very good job. So now let's add some pressure. So there's a demandingness. Hey, you know what the Bible says? You're supposed to respect your husband. Oh, yeah? Did you ever read the next line? (laughs) You're supposed to be loving your wife. You know, and there's this demandingness, this pressure. You better shape up. You better do a better job. Because I married you to make me happy, and you're not doing it. And most of the time, that pressure, that demandingness doesn't get very far. And, and you know a typical pattern after that? What I see is what I call distance and depression. Usually the guys are the guys that go into the distancing. She's not making me happy. Maybe I'll find something else to make me happy. Maybe I'll just find something else to make me feel better about myself. You know what? I get respect at work. I get respect at work. So you see guys just throwing themselves into their work, and they're going to be successful at work, and they work extra hours, and they go for that one more sale, you know, whatever it is. They, they want to get their piece rate up, whatever it is they're working at. I'm, I'm going to get some sense of success here at my job, or, or maybe it's a hobby. You know, I'm going to break 100 this summer out on the links, you know. That's for nine holes. <laughs> you know, and, and guys will just throw themselves into hobby because, you know what, I'm getting better at this sport, or I'm getting better at this hobby, and uh, you know what, I feel better about myself when I get out in my fishing boat. I feel better about myself when I, whatever it is. And sometimes it's even ministry. That I, I can get some pats on the back. I, people respect me whenever I minister to them. and So even ministry can become a mistress. It's distancing. The depression is not always with the women, but a lot of times it is. And women that feel like this isn't working. This marriage isn't working. And you know what? I don't, I don't see it ever working. And if it weren't for the kids, you might not even get out of bed. What's the point? What's the point? Why did we even get married in the first place? And you know what often happens after that? Yeah, it's another D word, isn't it? Divorce. What's going on? What's the problem? Need three tips of communication? Is that going to solve it? That's like putting band-aids on cancer. It isn't going to solve it. And there's, there's something going on in our hearts, isn't there? there? There's a root problem. Something more radical going on with us. It was John Calvin that talked about our hearts being idol factories. That we keep generating idols. And I think marriage is painfully 
common way to see idols. You see, if we get married because I'm marrying you so you can make me happy, we make an idol out of, well, actually ourselves. We're making an idol out of marriage, but it's actually ourselves that we're making an idol of. That, that what makes life work for me, what makes life work for me is being happy, and, and that's your job, to make me happy. And so marriage becomes a vehicle or uh, some means of trying to make my life work. And my wife's respect, my wife's appreciation, my husband's love, whatever it is, can become an idol. And when that idol doesn't work, I'll manufacture another one. Uh, I'll just exchange that idol for another idol. Maybe it's my work or my ministry or my friends or Facebook or my hobby, but I'll just exchange that idol for another idol. And we're just manufacturing idols trying to make life work. What's happening? There's a root problem, isn't there? A root problem that reveals that we're trying to make idols work for us. When we were there at the lowest point in our marriage, and I hope we never go back there, oh, we still have our ups and downs. But I, know, I hope we never go as low as we did that day almost 19 years ago. But in the Lord's providence, right at that very era, when we were at our lowest, we met a man who didn't even know it, but the Lord was using him to radically rock my boat as a husband. We were still raising our kids at that point. All three of our kids were still at home. And we lived about a quarter of a mile from a Christian retirement center, a nursing home. And with our parents, our kids' grandparents, being in Pennsylvania, and we lived in Indiana, uh, they didn't have as much interaction with older people. Our church has always been a young church, and we didn't have very many old people in the church. And so wanting our kids to grow up with experiencing older people, we went over to this Christian retirement center and said, do you have any folks here that just need family, just need friends? We want our kids to be around older people. And we did. We got to know some dear older people, all of whom are with the Lord now. But um, we weren't even looking for them, but we ran into Mr. Boggs. <laughs> and as we got to know Mr. Boggs, we found out that he wasn't actually a resident of the nursing home. His wife was. His wife was in the severe stages of Alzheimer's and had been for years. And every day, Mr. Boggs would go to Grace Village, this retirement center, and he would spoon-feed his wife, and he would change her diaper and bathe her and sing love songs to her. And the next day, he would go to Grace Village and spoon-feed his wife and change her diaper and bathe her and sing love songs to her. And the next day, he would go to Grace Village and spoon-feed his wife and change her diaper and bathe her and sing love songs to her. And he had done that for years. 
And here I am at that point, a middle-aged husband, looking at this older man. And the question that kept going through my mind is, how does that work? How does that work? His wife isn't fixing his meals. She's not washing his clothes. She's not giving him great sex. She doesn't even know his name. How does that work? I was baffled. Simultaneously, I told you the Holy Spirit took a two by four to my heart. Simultaneously, he would not let me out of a passage that interestingly isn't directly about marriage. 1 John 4. You can join me there if you'd like. 1 John chapter 4. And the Holy Spirit just would not let me go. And he began to show me the root problem of my heart as a husband acting, acting very unchristlike. That the root problem of my heart was much deeper than just learning some communication skills or having more accountability, that I had an idol problem. And the only solution to the idols of my heart was the application of the gospel. That I need a gospel solution to the root problem of my heart as a husband. And he began to show me from 1 John 4 that it is God's love for me that is the means for me to love my wife. Let me just selectively read in 1 John 4. Let me read verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Or how about verse 15 and 16? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know him and to believe the love, or you could even translate that, trust the love, that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Or how about the most famous verse probably in this passage, verse 19? We love because he first loved us. Because of the idol of my heart, I was working on the premise that I can't love my wife because she's not doing a very good job of loving me. I have two cups here. We were operating our marriage with what I would call reactionary love. You know, it went something like this. You know, if, if this cup was my wife and this cup were me, I could say, Gladine, as long as you pour some love into me, I'll have some love to pour back into you. And guess what she could say? Well, as long as you pour some love into me, I'll have some love to pour into you. And we live that way. You know, as long as you're doing a good job, as long as you're doing a good job as a wife, then I can do a good job as a husband. Well, as long as you're doing a good job as a husband, I can do a good job as a wife. 
And if you're not doing a very good job as a wife, how do you expect me to do a good job as a husband? If you're not doing a very good job as a husband, how do you expect me to do a good job as a wife? And it was just reactionary love. I'm just reacting to you. And you know what happens in those situations? I, I don't know if I told you this or not, but I married a sinner. And so did she. <laughs> and we were not perfectly filling one another's cup. And after a while, we both felt rather dry. We both felt rather dry. And the Lord used the example of Mr. Boggs to illustrate in my mind 1 John 4. That I was contemplating Mr. Boggs, asking that question, how does that work? And the Holy Spirit was just pressing on my conscience, pushing the idol out of my heart with 1 John 4. That, Larry, you don't love your wife because she loves you. You love your wife because I love you. We love because he first loved us. We know and trust, rely on. I like the NIV there. We know and rely on the love God has for us. That the Holy Spirit is taking me back to gospel truths as a husband. That it was the love that God has for me because of Jesus Christ that was the means of me loving my wife. Similarly, it was the love that God has for me because of Jesus Christ that motivated me to love my wife. Look at verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God, if God so loved us, or since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, Whoever loves God must also love his wife. Well, it says brother, but you could say wife or husband. Whoever loves God must also love his wife. That because of that gospel-fueled love that God has for me, I was motivated to love my wife. And even thinking about that song we sang a little while ago, that um, God could have kept the treasure of heaven to himself. He could have kept his own son, Jesus Christ, to himself and never sent him to this fallen world. He was God. He had the right to withhold his son from us. He's not obligated, but he committed in love to send his son to freely give him to us so that we might have salvation. Not only that, but even thirdly, we can say that the love that God has for me is the model or the pattern of me loving my wife. Verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Or I like to translate it, this is the epitome of love. I should say paraphrase. Not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son to be in a propitiation for our sins. See, the love that God has for us is very tangible, very demonstrated. He sent his son to be that propitiation for our sins. Or as we read in Ephesians 5.25, that verse we read last night, that 
Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Very tangible. Here in 1 John 4, John's writing about a specific event in history, isn't he? Propitiation, he's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.16, right across the page, it says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And to realize this gospel solution to my heart problem, that my problem in my marriage wasn't just technique It wasn't just needing more accountability. It went much deeper than that. That there was a problem at the root that I was pursuing idols, even in my own marriage. And the only thing that can root out idols of the heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the life of a believer. And the Holy Spirit's doing heart surgery on this old heart of mine, softening it up with the oil and wine of the gospel. Reminding me that um, I didn't have to hold up my empty cup and demand my wife fill it. But even as we heard yesterday, he fills us with his love, not just to the top of the cup, but overflowing. (laughs) Beautiful picture. Overflowing that if I live with that gospel-centeredness, if I live with that Christ-centeredness to realize that he loves me full and overflowing, so that I'm never lacking, I am never deficient in love to give my wife, that began to make sense with Mr. Boggs. But I began to realize that the way Mr. Boggs could love a woman who didn't even know his name, how he could sacrifice himself changing her diaper, singing love songs to her. The only way that man could do it was because he understood how much God loved him because of Jesus Christ. That he... He soaked in the gospel every day. He he soaked in God's love every day to the point that he was saturated, as it were. And when he went into that nursing home room, he just could squeeze him and the love of Christ would come squirting out. (laughs) He had plenty of love to give this woman who didn't even remember that his name was Bob. I needed to learn a lesson that day. Thankful for the scriptures. And thankful for a man who is living it out in my presence. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I am so thankful for the renewed emphasis on a gospel centrality in the life of a Christian. I think for much of my Christian experience, I lived with this wrong paradigm that the gospel gets us saved and then the rest of the Christian life is kind of gritting your teeth and trying harder, you know? I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to do it, you know? And I'm just going to try harder. And um, someone was talking to me upstairs at the book table about Jerry Bridges. He was kind to write the introduction to my first book. And when we first got to know Jerry years ago... (laughs) This is such a new concept to us. Uh, can I, Gladney, do you mind if I tell a story about our first meeting with him? Because it, it was you. <laughs> we were at a, a family conference, and Jerry was one of the speakers, and we didn't know him at that point. And um, 
Everyone ate together in a cafeteria, about a thousand people, and the cafeteria was packed. There was like no place to sit. And so Gladine and I were standing there with our trays, looking for a couple empty chairs, and we spotted this table toward the back of the auditorium and couldn't really see who it was back there, but we could see there were a couple extra chairs. It looked like an older gentleman, and he's probably about my age now, <laughs> sitting back there with a couple empty chairs. So we started making our way back through the crowded cafeteria, and we got closer and realized, that's the speaker. <laughs> So we just says, Mr. Bridges, can we sit with you? And he's, he's a very gracious man. He said, sure. And we were sitting there at least for two minutes. <laughs> and Gladine said, Gladine has this sweet boldness. I don't, those of you that know Gladine can verify this, but she has this sweet way of asking questions that I would struggle asking. And she said, well, Mr. Bridges, you know, we read your first book, Pursuit of Holiness, and uh, powerful book. And, and then uh, recently we read your new book, back then, Transforming Grace. She says, I don't understand how the same man could write both books. <laughs> and I'm there like, oh, I think I'll go get some butter. <laughs> you know, but she has such a sweet way to say things like that. She was actually getting away with it. And, uh, you know, and, and Jerry, Jerry took a napkin, a paper napkin, and he just drew a simple line and drew a cross in the middle of the line and said, how did you get from here to the cross? It was the grace of Christ. Now, how are you going to get from the cross to heaven? You know, the grace of Christ. And he began to show us the gospel centrality. And, you know, the famous thing he's quoted for is preach the gospel to yourself every day. He says he didn't get that. That wasn't original with him. Nothing's new under the sun, right, brothers? <laughs> um, preach the gospel to yourself every day. But it wasn't until middle age that we began to realize that the gospel's for everyday life, the gospel's for our marriage, the gospel's for our marriage. And beginning to see gospel implications, gospel applications in our marriage began to change us. There's still a lot of changing to do, believe me. <laughs> but it began to change us, began to transform us. And, and even here, to realize that I can love my wife not just that she's lovable, and most days she is, but what if, what if, what if someone like Mrs. Boggs was my wife? That's hardly lovable, unless you're just going on memories. I mean, your memories, she doesn't have any. No, you love because you are loved. We love because he first loved us. And for a husband to love his wife, no matter what her lovability factor is, to love her because I am loved. You see, the vertical is what propels the horizontal. We are loved because of Christ, therefore we love. If any of us is sinned against by our spouse, why should we forgive our spouse? Small or large sin, why should you and I forgive our spouse? You can say it out loud. Because we've been forgiven. Ephesians 4.32 says that we forgive because we've been forgiven. Apply that to marriage. You don't say, well, I'd forgive her if she shaped up. I'd forgive him if he just promised never to do that again. You know, he should. But, uh, but we forgive because we've been forgiven. I love Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1 where he said the reason he was saved 
was because Christ wanted to put his immeasurable patience on display. Paul was just an object lesson of the patience of Christ. The worst of sinners. Saved so that Christ could put his patience on display. I've been shown the immeasurable patience of Christ. He could have squashed me like a bug at any time he wanted. But in his immeasurable patience, he bore with me. Now, can I not show an imperfect reflection of his patience with me? If my wife needs a dose of patience today? Why should I accept my spouse? Why should I accept my spouse just the way he or she is? Why not say, well, you know what? If you just shaped up, if you just did this, you just did that. Well, why not accept my spouse? Why, how can I accept my spouse just the way he or she is? Because I've been accepted. Romans 15 verse 7 says, accept one another just as you've been accepted. And there's this gospel pattern to marriage, that the gospel is very practical. I mentioned to you last night Rikuchi's quote that um, nothing fuels a marriage like the gospel. And to live with a gospel centrality, a Christ centrality in our marriages, that we love because we've been loved. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We accept because we've been accepted. We're patient because we've been shown patience, and so on and so on and so on. And the gospel radically transformed. I'm sure there's so much more we could talk about, but um, your heads and my heads are full. Let me recommend some books to you. Um, there are so many books out there on marriage, and some of them are good. <laughs> Let me tell you some of our favorites. Um, most of you here enjoy reading. People that come to Bunyan Conference tend to be readers. Not all, but most. If you enjoy reading, you're not intimidated by a large book on reading, on a large book on marriage, let me recommend Tim and Kathy Keller's book. It's just called The Meaning of Marriage. It's a good read. The Meaning of Marriage, Tim and Kathy Keller. Most of you are familiar with his ministry in New York City. A smaller book, but one I highly recommend, is Dave Harvey's book, When Sinners Say, I Do. It's a great title, and it's a good book. When Sinners Say, I Do. Dave's done the church a favor in showing that spouses are instruments in the hand of the Holy Spirit to help one another become more like Christ. We're sinners married to sinners. Now the Holy Spirit wants us to become more like Christ. And so he uses us, one another, spouses, in one another's lives to shape us, mold us, make us more like him. It's a good book. It's not very long, a couple hundred pages. When sinners say, I do. I already mentioned Love That Lasts, Gary and Betsy Ricucci, uh, even shorter. Uh, when I do marriage seminars at our church, I recommend that because not everyone likes to read. And that's a pretty short book, and it has discussion questions. So if you're, especially if you teach in your church or you're a pastor, you're mentoring, and you know people don't read big books, Love That Lasts is a good one. So I'd encourage that. And of course, uh, I would be remiss not to mention Loving Your Wife. This is for husbands. Um, Someone asked me why I wrote this book. I said, well, actually, I wrote it for us. <laughs> I told you this was written since that crisis in our marriage 19 years ago. That um, I knew I needed 
I needed to think about this. And I took a summer sabbatical from my ministry to work on this book uh, a few years ago. And twice during that sabbatical, I told Gladine I was going to call the publisher and ask to be out of the contract. And she said, why, why would you do that? And I said, I don't feel like I'm living this. I kid you not. She said, no, please keep writing. Maybe it'll help us. <laughs> and it has. Um, but this is kind of our story, you know, processing how the Gospels come and transformed, especially me as a husband, but obviously reflected in my wife as well. Les was kind in copying. Uh, I wrote a, a paper called The Centrality of the Gospel in Marriage. I actually thought about just reading this aloud tonight as uh, kind of a quasi-academic paper. It's not real academic, but anyways, in that pattern. But um, decided instead just to make this available if you want. But it's, again, it's called The Centrality of the Gospel in Marriage. And it just goes through and tries to clearly show uh, practical applications of the gospel in the context of husband, husbanding and wifing. So those are out on the uh, registration table. If you want a copy, if you run out, I bet we could make some more. I hope that's helpful to you. I'm going to stick around. I'll be here till the conference is over as well. I've enjoyed the conversations with different ones of you. Um, I know my wife would be glad to serve you as well, uh, interacting with, with you if you'd like. I've talked to several of you who are pastors uh, about the, the book Loving Your Wife. And let me just offer, if you want to take books home for Bible studies, men's groups, book tables, whatever. We're glad to do what we can to serve you that way. You don't feel like you have to pay us today. Um, we have enough gas money to get home to Indiana, so we'll be all right. So uh, feel free to talk to us about that. Can I just pray for us here? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your son, Jesus Christ. You could have withheld him from us, and yet you didn't. You gave him up for us so that we could be made right with you through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And Lord, we would ask that you would help us, especially those of us who are married or those who hope to be married or those of us who work with couples that are married, that we would uh, not give superficial solutions to deep-seated problems, but that we might recognize how serious the issues of our hearts are and how your gospel is more than sufficient to draw our hearts away from idols and toward your son, Jesus Christ. So please, Lord, continue your work in my life, my marriage, our marriage, and the marriages reflected here and in the churches represented. We pray in Jesus' name.